Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support the show, please head over to the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. All right, now on to the next topic. All right, folks, we're back for another episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast, and I think I might have our, our quickest return guest, <laughs> um, Mike McKnight. You were on the podcast, uh, I guess it was a, from a time standpoint, maybe a little bit ago, but then we had a bit of a recording break for a good six, six weeks or so. So from, a, from an episode release number, you're not too far back in the catalog, and uh, it was kind of cool to have, hear your story because, in my opinion you're kind of the guy uh, to talk to when it comes to running some of these, uh, I guess what you'd maybe call freakishly long ultra marathons where you're the person that when a hundred miles isn't enough, <laughs> we find, we find you and, and a handful of other uh, um, adventurous folks out there running 200 plus mile races, these multi-day things. And it's just to me fascinating to just look at just, the logistics as well as the strategy behind something that long, because there's just, you know, there's just so many things that potentially could happen that you can't necessarily account for. And probably a limitless number of things that you could try to account for. But if you start trying to do it with all of them, you're so stressed out before you even start that, you know, you, you almost have to just let some things come to chance a little bit, or just know you're going to be able to problem solve on the fly. Um, but thanks again for thanks for coming back on the show. I think we've got some exciting stuff to talk about. Of course. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun talking with you. Yeah, yeah. So since we had you on, you know, one of the reasons I think you're one of the quickest return guests is we had you on to talk mostly about your uh, your 200-mile uh, stuff. And uh, there's uh, just to remind listeners, if you hadn't listened to the episode we had with Mike earlier, there's this thing called the Triple Crown of 200s that you do races that are between 205 and 238 miles, three of them all within just basically a couple months. And Mike's won that series two years in a row. And last year he actually broke the, the group course record as well as was it all the course records for the 200 milers individually along the way? Um, so like the overall course record at Bigfoot, the counterclockwise course record at Tahoe, and then the male course record at Moab. I didn't, okay. I didn't quite catch Courtney's record. <laughs> yeah. She's got that, that, that fast one, but did, but you did it with all three. Courtney did just one of them. <laughs> <laughs> now Courtney's Courtney's obviously, uh, you know, a, a, a massive presence in that world as well when it comes to just ultras in general with her, but like her range of being able to do things that are as like simple as a 400 meter track for 24 hours, all the way up to, you know, extreme mountains for 238 miles and everything in between is pretty mind boggling. Cause I think the sports at a point now where there's enough competition that you do kind of have to 
compartmentalize a little bit or decide like, okay, what are going to be kind of my go-to style of races? If you really want to, you know, try to end up at the top of a podium or on a podium and some of the more competitive stuff. So uh, what was, what was kind of the draw for you to get into kind of that, the longer stuff, the 200 plus mile stuff? Yeah. So I've never been a good um, sprinter <laughs> or, or just like a, like when my heart rate gets in that zone, that's like higher, like zone four, zone five, like I do not do well with that. Um, <clears throat> I remember like specifically when I was in high school, we were doing like a 40 yard dash for football. And like, I was a little guy and a lineman who was like at least 40 to 50 pounds heavier than me smoked me at the 40 yard <laughs> dash. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not a fast twitch muscle kind of a guy. And, um, that kind of correlates over to ultra running, like 50 Ks, 50 miles, even some hundred miles. Like you gotta have, like, it's just specific muscle groups for specific races. And the, the shorter, the distance, the worse I am at it just because I'm not a quick runner. But when you start introducing a couple different days, um, sleep deprivation, weather um just being on your feet for such a long time that's for some reason what i figured out i'm good at and so you know i try to get better at those things i'm not good at but i'm also not going to just focus on that completely like i'm going to keep working on what i'm best at right now mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a, a sound approach and yeah I, I i wonder like i'd have to look and maybe you know like what like kind of averages for folks that are obviously things are skewed because you're winning these things so it's like your time is faster than everyone's essentially but i would like to see like percentages of like time spent sleeping or non-moving versus moving on some of these races because if i'm not mistaken you slept for less than an hour on those 200 mile races right yeah yeah, yeah. i i you know when people at like i i coach and when people are training for a 200, I never recommend the approach of sleeping less than an hour like, like I did. <laughs> um, I'm just not a good sleeper. So like when I did the Triple Crown in 2017, I would try to sleep and I just couldn't and I would just waste time. And so in 2019, I just figured I'm, I was going to run until I couldn't run no more than lie on the side of the trail and take a five or 10 minute nap and get up and keep going. And that just seemed to work for me because I can't sleep good um, when I try to sleep. So... Yeah. It's almost like a normal weakness of like having a hard time sleeping works in your favor because like you, you just, you don't have non-moving time where, and you could have someone like, like four hours faster than you that is probably going to sleep for four hours in the course of three, 200 plus milers. And you know, that could be the difference between you beating them and not, even though they're maybe technically moving faster than you out there. So it just adds that, that extra variable that I don't think we're even considering a lot of times in some of these long hundred mile type races. Yeah, absolutely. And I blame that on my dad for raising me up on a dairy farm. <laughs> I had a function of no sleep for most of my childhood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the, I won't go down too far of a rabbit hole here, but I had a student once when I was teaching that had a dairy farm and they had this big contraption installed where it was like basically self milking where the cows would just walk into it and this robot arm would milk it. So they would go when they wanted to get milked versus on a schedule. And they would, uh, he said the peak time for milking was between one and 2 a.m. in the morning. So I'm thinking, man, if, if a farmer wanted to try to implement that without the mechanics, they would be waking up at that time of the day just to let the cows come out and milk. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the sleep deprivation thing, I think is, is probably a skill set that you, maybe you're born with. And it's just going to give you a bit of an advantage for this sort of stuff if you can, if you can tolerate it. Um, 
but I mean, there's a lot of other things that go into it. Obviously, like you still have to be mentally strong, physically strong. You've got to be able to figure out nutrition and figure out all these other strategies and, and ultimately just wrap your head around what, what you're about to do. You know, walking into something that, you know, you might not sleep for two nights straight is, is pretty incredible. And, um, but yeah, so I think folks, if they want to hear a little more about kind of your 200 mile plus journey and that sort of stuff, I would just definitely recommend going back and checking out our first interview with you. Cause I think we did a bit of a deeper dive into that stuff, but, uh, we've got a few things I think are interesting to talk about that have had you kind of in the, in the news a little bit, especially within the kind of low carb, high fat community where, uh, you know, there's been just a endless amount of, uh, kind of cool adventures and activities and self-planned type projects that people have been doing since we just haven't had access to the number of races that we normally do with the COVID the COVID situation. And uh, one thing you wanted to do that you were really curious is just to see if you could run a hundred miles without eating a single calorie. And not only did you do it, but you did it in, what was it? 18 and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you talk to us a bit about like that? What was like the, what was the, maybe the catalyst of uh, why you wanted to do that? And what were some of the things that you were most concerned about going in and then how did it kind of play out compared to what you expected it to be like when you first started thinking about that? So one of the biggest reasons I started low carb was stomach issues. Um, I started ultra running in about 2013 and I would say it was a 50, 50 shot that I was going to run into some stomach issues in my races. Um, And that like that, that percentage slowly got bigger. Um, I felt like it was almost impossible not to have stomach issues. So when I was talking to you, when I met you and Jeff Browning, um, when I started working for ultra footwear, um, low carb came up in discussions. And one of the things that both of you mentioned was how, you know, it essentially makes you bonk proof and then you can eat less and have less chance of digestive issues. So that had a big appeal to me. So I started low carb in 2017 and just, you know, just because I wanted to really reduce the chance of stomach issues, I did a lot of my training runs fasted, even my longer runs. Um, And when I was doing those, I never felt like dips of energy. I never felt cramping issues and I never had stomach issues just because I wasn't intaking calories. So pretty quickly I started doing, um, you know, 50Ks fasted and feeling pretty good. And so I've had it in the back of my head for a couple of years of wondering what the possibility is for, you know, how far somebody could go completely relying on their fat storage. And, you know, with a hundred miles being the distance that a lot of people like ultra runners, most ultra runners try to train for a hundred mile, a hundred mile race. And that kind of becomes the, the focus of their ultra running career. And so since that's a a big distance in ultra running, I decided to pick that as a distance to go for. And then once COVID happened this year and all my races canceled and I had nothing else to train for, I I figured it was a better time to to do it now and and just kind of train for it and and went for it earlier this spring. Um, Some of the big things I noticed when I did it. um, So yeah, I guess to take a back step, I used um, Redmond Real Salt and then bulk potassium and bulk magnesium. And I would basically just lick my finger and stick it in the powders and then suck it off of my finger. Um, (laughs) A real salt lick. (laughs) Yeah, a real salt lick. (laughs) Um, And bulk potassium, oh my goodness, like that makes salt taste sweet almost. (laughs) Really? Yeah, potassium is so bitter. Okay. Um, 
but so yeah that was all i intook during the, the run and then obviously water and then um i really like i strangely i didn't have any stomach like i didn't crave food um i didn't feel any major dips of energy the biggest thing that i noticed was um and it was a relatively flat course it was about five thousand feet of elevation over the course of 100 miles so it's not flat but it's not like you know like a hard rock um but I noticed like any hill that I had to go up after about mile 65, um, I had like no other gear. And so I basically had to walk any kind of uphill or else my heart rate spiked tremendously. Um, so I, I did notice that some calories and carbs would have been beneficial for hills. But I mean, aside from having to walk some of the uphills, like I was able to consistently run for probably 92 of the 100 miles. So mm-hmm. it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it definitely did. It's interesting to think about because I, I think like I love looking at your explanation of that and thinking about, okay, like that is like a perfect example, I think, of just what we get oftentimes get kind of muddled with in this topic where it's like this uh, thought of need versus optimization. And I see this all the time in discussions around it where it's like, you know, someone will say, well, you need carbohydrates to run endurance races. It's like, well, no, you don't need them, but like you may want them from a performance standpoint to a degree. And it's probably going to be a lot of context, individual like stuff that gets plugged into that in terms of how much you not want or how much you would want in terms of a performance benefit from it. But when it comes to need, I mean, you drew a perfect example of like, you know, how you don't necessarily need it just to cover the distance. It's a uh, it's something that can be done and obviously, uh, can be done in a, in a fairly decent, decent time, time frame, all things considered. But, uh, one thing I wanted to kind of to ask you about that too, was, uh, cause we talked a little bit before and we actually brought in a, a professor Dan Plews for a little bit, just to get an idea. Cause we were thinking about just, uh, you know, how do you go about making sure you don't find yourself in a situation where you're just staggering along at mile 70 and you're like, at this point, where do I drop out? Do I eat something and ruin the whole project or what do I do? And, and I think Professor Plews is, uh, uh, his thought was essentially keeping your heart rate below a certain number so you can ensure like you're burning just like basically all fat and keeping your glycogen stores intact, intact is going to kind of help out um, and it sounds like your body almost did that by default. If you get to a hill, it just was like extremely difficult to really push much past the heart, a certain heart rate. What was the, did you, do you have like your average heart rate and stuff during the run itself? Or were you kind of just moving a little more by feel? Um, yeah, I was monitoring my heart rate <clears throat> every 20 minutes. Um, and I'll pull up what my average heart rate was while I'm talking to you. Um, but so the number that, that we came to the conclusion that I should hover around is about 125, no more than 130. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know my average was lower than that or lower than the 130. It was in that range. Um, so like, for example, when I got to the hills and I felt like uh, that I needed to walk, um, I wasn't necessarily forced into it. Like I could have ran those hills, but I was purposely walking. So I was keeping my heart rate in that range. Um, I'm just saying that like, I noticed a significant increase in heart rate more than I would if I was actually in taking some calories, like in a race or something like that. Um, but according to my Strava, (coughs) 
My average heart rate for the entire run. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> it is right here. It was... My internet's not working that well. <laughs> You're using um, it all up for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, overview. Heart rate. Oh my gosh, I don't even know where it says my heart rate on Strava. <laughs> No, no worries. It's not, it's not yeah. that. It, it was about, if I remember right, it was about 126 was the overall heart rate for the okay. Yeah. Cause I'm, I was curious, like, have you tracked heart rate in other hundred milers that you've done without just any like zero calorie strategy? Yeah. I'm usually hovering about 148 for most of my hundred milers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds about similar to what I'm usually kind of right around 150 or so on average. And it's always interesting to look at that stuff just because early on, I, I can keep it quite low, kind of in the high 130s, one, low 140s. But then like, even if my, like, if you look at my most at or my most like concisely paced race at the Pettit Center last year, in August, it was like my average, I think was close to 150. But uh, my pacing was pretty consistent throughout I had a two minute spread between the first 50 miles and the second 50 miles. And uh but you know, heart rate at the end is just going to be a little bit higher at the same pace from a lot of different variables like cardiac drift, just fatigue and lower blood volume and things like that. So, uh, it is kind of interesting to look at the averages is maybe too much of a macro picture to see what's happening in detail. But I think like in, in terms of your strategy, it sounded like it was sound in the sense that you were probably going to finish with muscle glycogen intact and, uh, um, that makes sense. Like you, you probably could have hammered to some of those Hills if you had wanted to, but you're also like probably conscious a little bit of just not, you know, trying not to like put yourself into a bad situation and seeing that it was your first time doing it. Uh, you kind of have to play it conservatively, uh, to be safe to a degree, but if you did it again, do you think you could take some time off of that 18 and a half hours? Yeah. Um, and it's kind of funny. Um, I've been meaning to text you about this. I, I was listening to the podcast that you were on with um, Blister, oh, the yeah. Off the Couch mm-hmm. podcast. And I think he over-exaggerated what I said to him about what I think I can get my heart rate up to. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but basically, I'm curious to know if I could do it um, getting closer to my aerobic ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, he made it sound like I was going to try and drift into like an anaerobic kind of state with my heart rate but you know aerobic ceiling for me is 155 um technically and so i'm thinking if i'm hovering between 148 and 155 that i don't know if it can be done but i'm curious about it um and i definitely feel that i could do it faster because there's multiple times i was holding back to keep that heart rate down mm-hmm. but then again you know who knows if i would have drifted into the 130s for the majority of the day maybe I wouldn't have been able to finish it. So um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of an unknown, but I, I do. Jeff Browning is going to hook me up with goo energy labs in the next year or so. And we're going to actually do testing on it and I'm going to try it again. And I'm definitely going to go up a little bit with my heart rate. Sure. Yeah. That was the thing I was going to be the most curious about. Cause my thought would be like, if you stay at like one, you know, that one twenty six ish heart rate, for someone like you who follows a relatively strict ketogenic diet and has even dabbled with like zero carb from time to time, like, I mean, you're, you're burning super high levels of fat just by default, almost in that, in that environment. And, you know, been doing it since 2017, you, you actually have some time under your belt too. So like, it's safe to say that you are, you're, 
thoroughly fat adapted. And um, I would wonder if like your glycogen stores were almost the same at mile 80 as they were when you started, just because you, you may didn't, you may have not hardly even tapped into them and you may have tapped into them at such a small degree. If you did that, you could get some, uh, some conversion uh, like what we would see maybe in, in, I think there was a dog study up on the Iditarod where they looked at that. And I mean, those dogs are obviously eating, but I'm pretty sure they're not eating carbohydrate sources. They're eating like, like basically meat, I think if I'm not mistaken, or some sort of like fat protein type of energy source. And they, uh, they actually finished the race with higher glycogen stores when they started. And granted that's dogs and not, not humans, (laughs) but that's what I was curious about when you kind of finished it It was like, man, I would have been so cool if there would have been a way to kind of monitor your muscle glycogen stores throughout the course. So you could see like, Oh yeah, they're kind of hovering around this or they're, there's like a small little like ebb and flow throughout the course of the day or something like that. Because if they're intact, then I mean, in theory, you get to like mile 85, 90 and you could, you should be able to start hammering and then go up into like, you know, almost start touching threshold type uh, intensities if you had the the desire to do so, which is always a kind of bit of a coin flip, I think, at mile 85. (laughs) (laughs) That is interesting though. I, I, my max heart rate was 146, I'm pretty sure, um, Mm -hmm. throughout the whole period of the day. So my heart rate never got that high. Um, and all of that was at the start, like the, the 5,000 feet of elevation gain, um, I planned in the first, well, so basically I did 4,000 feet of elevation gain in the first 30 miles and then just a thousand feet over the course of the next 70 miles. So, um, the majority of my higher heart rate was at the first when I was doing some of the hill work. Um, but then after that, so it's kind of backwards of what you were saying. I had my heart rate a little bit higher at the start. And then once I got past the hills, I was able to dial it back and, and get the heart rate lower. So if, if I did tap into my glycogen, it might've been in the first 30 miles. But, you know, after that, like, I feel like I was going slow enough that it makes sense what you were just saying that I might not have tapped into it that much. Yeah, it is, it's interesting to think about. I think there's like two other kind of key questions I have about that experience in general. And one is uh, recovery. Like how did that differ, if at all, from just racing in general, when you're going to be doing, I guess, like at least a, a small strategic amount of carbohydrate or foods in general in some of the stuff you've done historically. And then two, is this like, it sounds like to me, like if you're trying to nail a hundred miler and like a race, you're probably going to ingest some food going forward. But let's talk a little bit about what is this, how does this, this impact some of the 200 plus mile stuff where I feel like you can correct me if I'm wrong, but your heart rate is probably in similar ranges for something like that. If you're going to be out there for over twice as long. Yeah. I'd say it's about 10 beats higher about at an average in the one thirty fives to one forty. but yeah, Mm -hmm. it's slow. Yeah. Um, to answer your first question, um, and I already forgot it. <laughs> Sorry, I should. I knew I should have broke that into two separate questions, but I got greedy and I went for both of them. <laughs> the, the first one was, how was recovery different from oh, okay. this versus uh, normal situations? Um, so the aside from not getting hunger pains during um, the hundred miles, I'd say the biggest thing that took me back throughout this whole process was my recovery process. I was expecting it to be a rough go, but it was quite the opposite of that. Um, I started running, it was like two max three days after, and I usually take about five days off after a hundred miles and just focus on mountain biking. But it was about two or three days later, I started running again. And like, right when I started running, 
for like the next two, three weeks, I was just hitting all sorts of different PRs at a, like a lower heart rate. Um, I'm on Strava. So, you know, I have like PRs and stuff that I can look at and like certain trail segments I've been doing for the past four years. Like aside from moving to Denver for two months last year, I've lived in this city for the past five years of my life. So I, I've done these trails for quite some time and like I set multiple PRs. I, I moved up on like segment leaderboards, like without feeling like I was really trying that hard. Um, so the recovery, like I didn't even feel like I had to recover. Like right away I felt really good and I can't really figure out why. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe you have an idea. <laughs> All right, folks, this episode of the human performance outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named elemental labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, Jiu-Jitsu. And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, I would be definitely guessing. And I think, I mean, we're guessing at a lot of things, which I think is one of the more fascinating things about hundred mile and ultra marathons in general is, uh, you know, I think most people understand that there's a lot of unknowns and we're essentially extrapolating research forward in a lot of cases to try to make best guesses. But to me, that just means like individual experience is going to be gold standard when it comes to deciding what you should be eating and how much of it and when and where and all that stuff. Uh, as much as anything, especially when you start to get a body of evidence behind you as to how certain things affect you personally versus, you know, maybe your friend running and doing something completely opposite and having success with it that way. But um, yeah, from the recovery standpoint, like, I mean, I think there's maybe two things to consider if I had to guess one would be just like, since you were running a little bit easier um, than you would have, if you just went to try to hammer it, you probably would bounce back a little quicker, almost as if it was like a tune up race versus an a race. Um, but that doesn't necessarily describe the, 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 the performance post where like, you know, not only was the recovery condensed, but then you went out and were actually running more efficiently. So it's like, it's almost like the adaptation took place quicker and you got really efficient at that level of intensity to the degree that when you did get back to it, you kind of had that carryover from the race or the run itself. Um, but I mean, I'd have to have someone much smarter than me come on and talk about it, which maybe I'm going to have to do now. Cause I think that's interesting to have to Dan on the show and ask him what he thinks is going on with that. But, um, I mean, that's the big one. Cause I know like within the high fat, kind of the high fat community of endurance runners, one of the things that it seems like everyone who's had success with it, granted, there's probably a ton of people who've tried it and then went back to whatever they were doing before. 
But the folks that stick with it, they tend to almost always say that they notice that their recovery is better, especially after these big efforts where you would normally get that kind of waddle down the stairs backwards type of a feeling in your legs. Or I remember Jeff, when he first did it and did hurt, he was just shocked because the next day he could do air squats without like complete loss of mobility and things like that. So it is something that seems to pop up anecdotally a lot with the endurance crowd. Um, I'm not sure if it does with like, say like, cause another interesting community that has dabbled in it would be like CrossFit and they're doing like, just like explosive stuff, which you would think would create incredible muscle soreness if, if those folks who are kind of in that world are, are noticing something similar or not, I'd have to have someone on or look into that one as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I couldn't say for sure. So it's, it's interesting. I think it's, it's something to definitely, you know, take note of for you as an individual and recognize, okay, this is what my experience has been. So um, I have to put some, some credence in it for, for you as a, as an individual. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like it's so individualistic, like in preparation for that, I was doing an 18-6 intermittent fasting window every day for about two months. Um, and I, that was like my, like, you know, when you do low carb, at least with me, I don't know if this is your case, but a lot of people ask me if I implement intermittent fasting and until I like prepped for the zero cal 100, I never did. Um, I was eating basically three meals a day, um, at least, <laughs> Um, and so, but since doing that, I've like kind of fallen in love with intermittent fasting and I've been actually warned a few times, like, you know, be careful, somebody training at that kind of intensity all the time with the distance I'm doing, like it, it's not a good thing necessarily to intermittent fast every day. And I'm just finding that I have a harder time recovering from the past day's run um, when I'm not intermittent fasting, but when I am intermittent fasting, then I recover so much better. So even though the warning signs are out there to not do it every day, um, I, I, I find that I personally feel a lot better and perform a lot better when I'm doing some kind of intermittent fasting every day, strangely enough. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting topic. I would think like in general, the big mover there, there's probably a couple of them, but like the big one would be just energy balance. So like if you were intermittent fasting and found yourself chronically under eating because of that short eating window, you'd maybe see the majority of the, I, my guess is the majority of people that are having issues with that are probably having issues out of, from under consuming because they're doing like what you said, a training program similar to yours is you know, you're burning probably two, sometimes three times your resting metabolic rate on a given day. Um, and that might just be the weekdays, <laughs> the, the, um, and then the other one would just be kind of like, uh, the protein timing side of things. I know we've had, we've had a few of the top kind of protein researchers on the show. And the basic message that if I had to sum it up short is that the big step forward is making sure you get enough protein of the high quality protein, um, and then the next step forward, which is a much smaller step is, uh, the protein activating protein muscle synthesis, which can be done essentially kind of in about a four to maybe five ish hour windows. So if you, if you say do like the extreme of a 23, one fast where you're eating one hour out of the day and you're really beating your body up, you may benefit a little bit from spreading those protein sources out. So you're getting that protein muscle synthesis on a more frequent basis versus just once every 24 hours. But again, the big step forward is getting enough. So that would be, I think the first, the first thing would be 
making sure with that, that single meal or that smaller eating window that you're getting the nutrients that you need, um, in order to just, you know, feel good and, and perform. And then, then any small step forward in that, that would be, uh, harder to probably measure, uh, without, yeah. without having two of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my six hour window yesterday, I got 4,000 calories. So I there think you go. Yeah. quite a bit. <laughs> That's just one of Drew Manning's meals right now, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were joking around about that because Drew came on the show a couple episodes ago to talk about his, he's doing the the fit to fat to 40 this time around where he's going to try to gain a bunch of weight and then lose it. And he's going to use uh, kind of, I guess, uh, dirty versions of certain diets on the way up where he's eating just uh, kind of high energy, low nutrient value uh, foods that fit within it, like a vegan template or a keto template. And he's going to lose it doing it the right way, I think, if I remember correctly. And, mm-hmm. um, but he's been posting now, like if folks who are listening to that episode are following along, you'll notice he's posting all his meals and stuff on Instagram. And he's got some, some massive, massive calorie meals coming <laughs> on, his way, on his way up in weight. So <laughs> The funny thing, I, I texted him the other day. I was like, what, what diet has cinnamon toast crunch? Like, like who's doing a certain diet and thinks it's okay to eat cinnamon toast crunch for breakfast. The the vegans get that one. They can have that one. Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) Yeah. I'd have to look at the box, but, uh, um, I guess like they would need almond milk for sure. That would be the big hiccup. I suppose would be probably a dairy, some trace dairy or something in there, but yeah. Um, yeah, you can definitely, you can definitely do things I think in a, in a crazy way versus the more dialed in way, no matter what, what the, the diet trend or ideology is to the, to a degree. So it's kind of interesting to see, see what he's doing over there. But um, one thing I think I wanted to talk and just so our listeners kind of know, Mike is, Mike has uh, been very kind to us because in two days he's going to take on a, a massive project. And I wanted to get him on right before, just so we could hear a little bit about kind of how he's preparing for this. And then uh, hopefully um, if you don't get a huge media blitz after crushing the record, you'll come back on and give us a bit of a download as to kind of how everything went. And we can either, I'll either release these in two sets or I'll combine them all at once and people can kind of have it all at once. But um, tell us what you've got planned for Saturday. And then at least a few days after that. So I'm actually driving on Saturday. Um, I'm not going to be starting until Monday. Oh, okay. Um, So, but yeah, so I I'm here in Utah and on Saturday. So two days from now, I'll be driving to Durango, Colorado um, with a couple of my friends who are going to crew me and I'm going to go after the Colorado trail FKT. Um, <clears throat> and the Colorado trail goes from Durango to basically Denver, Colorado, um, goes through the San Juans, goes through Leadville, Gunnison, um, a bunch of different territory. <laughs> um, it's a pretty massive trail. And, um, the reason I'm doing that was actually corny to Walter. Um, I was out doing my own little like project while she started that and following along. Um, and then for those who are listening, who don't know Courtney, she went for the FKT. It was about a month ago, um, I think. Um, and then she ran into some issues with, I believe, hape um, and bronchitis. So basically she had some issues with her lungs and she had to pull. Um, but a couple of days after getting out of the hospital, we were talking and basically her ambitious, contagious attitude after talking to her, she was like, you should give it a go. And I think it was that day. I was like, okay, let's, let's do this. I my, my didn't bad take water, long to convince yeah. <laughs> And that, the ironic thing about that, you know, with COVID, all of our races are canceling this year. 
I have a race in two and a half weeks, which hasn't been canceled, which I've just been praying all year won't get canceled so I can actually do a race. Um, but now that I'm doing the Colorado trail, I'm, I, I pulled my name from that race. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, so it's, it's just under 500 miles. Um, the current FKT fastest known time is eight days and seven hours for the, the route that I'm going to take. Um, I'm hoping, obviously I just want to, you know, eight days and six hours and I'll get the record. So obviously that's the, the, the number one goal. But like my big, big stretch goal, I'm hoping to do it in six days and 23 hours. So I can say I, I did it in less than a week. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> that, that's, that's amazing. I think just like for someone like, like you, Mike, I think the, the mentality is probably the big intrigue for a lot of people because I would imagine you'd almost have to forget the experience you went through the previous time you did something similar to this in order to really be able to kind of like not just work yourself up into a frenzy, knowing what you're going to potentially go through over the course of that week, if things go well. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's just like that, that's the part that's really interesting to me. I think like your, your ability to kind of forget any of the super lows that you would have gone through from some of the other things you've done in the past and have a positive attitude with a, an actual strategy and plan is, is, is kind of mind boggling. So like, what do you, do you do anything like in the days leading in to kind of get your head in the right space for what you're about to do? So ironically, I'm a little bit opposite of what you just, just described. <laughs> um, me and my buddy Ben Lai and another buddy named Dax Hawk, we created a route. It was just, it was about a month and a half ago. It was a 300 mile route. Um, and basically the route linked up two 100 mile races here in Northern Utah, the bear 100 and the Wasatch 100. So we ran the bear 100 backwards and we created a 100 mile route to connect the bear and the Wasatch. We ran that and then we ran the Wasatch 100. And so that took us just over four days. And like my experience with that is I had zero issues. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had like one blister on the side of like the heel of my, my foot um, but after taping it up, I couldn't feel it anymore. Um, my energy levels were fine. I was able to run pretty consistently the majority of it. Um, so it was actually between talking to Courtney and between finishing that 300 mile route is like when I kind of decided that 500 miles sounded fun. <laughs> Just the concept of like living in a van for a few days and eating out of a cooler for a few days. And like, I don't know, I, I had fun doing it in July. So honestly, I've just been thinking about that experience and, and what might've, what, what I might do differently. Cause I feel like I could have shaved some time off of that experience. Um, but yeah, just thinking about that experience and how much fun I had and basically just thinking I get to do that for an extra three days. <laughs> yeah. Well, if 300 miles was fun, then you can count on no more than 200 miles of misery on this. Trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So oh. just, uh, one of the triple crown races basically <laughs> there you go yeah and you've, you've got experience there and, and just so the listeners know too with courtney's with courtney's uh, attempt i think uh you mentioned like the the bronchitis thing i saw a report afterwards that said uh when she she eventually got checked into the er and uh they did uh they looked at to make sure she was doing okay and they said her uh blood oxygen saturation levels were at like 70 percent and to give people some understanding of what that means ideally you're never below 95%. Like you're not dip, like obviously if you go and do like a hard workout or something, you're going to dip below probably. But then as your body kind of catches up relatively quickly, you want to be between like 95 and a hundred percent. 
and she was down to 70. When you get start dipping below 80, you start potentially uh, ushering in a organ failure. So, I mean, I, I think it's probably a good thing that she pulled out on that one from a, from a longevity within the sports standpoint. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. So is that something that you're concerned about at all? Just like, um, you know, the, just the, you know, Courtney's obviously a, a massive talent and someone who has a lot of experience under her belt. And, you know, so if something like this can, can pull her off the course, is there something, is there any, what's your biggest fear, I guess, not, not to try to drum up anything you haven't <laughs> thought of already, but what's the thing in your head that is like, okay, this is gonna be the biggest challenge for me or anything that you think could potentially derail you that, uh, that maybe wouldn't be a normal thing that would derail you in a typical event. So, yeah, I have thought about that quite a bit <clears throat> because like you said, she's a solid runner. Um, so I am slightly worried about that. I am planning on taking it a little bit I'm basically trying to reverse her approach and I'm going to take the first couple of days a little bit easier. And even though I'm not a good sleeper, I'm going to try to sleep regardless. I'm not going to have my 200 mile approach where I'm just going to run till I fall asleep basically. So the first three nights I have like four hours planned each night to like <clears throat> sleep. Um, and then after those first three nights, which is also going to be after the San Juans, that's when I'm going to start pushing it. And like the San Juans, that's the highest part of the Colorado trail. So basically my plan to try to not let that happen to me is to take it a little bit slower and, and easier and rest on those nights. And I even heard from Courtney that the person who currently has the FKT, that he, cause like, you know, when you go for an FKT, if it's supported, you can get in a car. And so he had his crew the first two nights drive him to Durango and he slept in Durango so he could get out of the high altitude for a oh. few hours each night. So I think just with the high altitude, like taking it easy, um, I don't, I don't want to spend time driving to Durango like that, but I think just taking it easy and resting during the high altitude spots is going to help out a lot. Um, the other biggest thing I'm worried about um, is just the weather. <laughs> for, for anybody that's paid attention to Durango, or sorry, to Colorado weather this week, um, knows that they got blasted with snow on Tuesday. Um, the forecast is looking good for the next 10 days, so I'm hopeful that it will melt. But, you know, I've gone to the San Juan Mountain Range for the past four years to spectate hard rock. And even if the weather is predicted to be good, they usually get an occasional like every day, uh, an occasional afternoon thunderstorm, lightning storm. So I'm worried about the weather in the San Juan specifically. But aside from that, you know, I'll have crew with me and I'll see them every 20 to 30 miles. So, you know, aside from the weather, I, I feel pretty confident about it. Yeah, I think I, I think what you're about to try is, is uh, pretty cool. And then I think when you couple in what you've been doing the past few months, it just adds to the to the story. It seems like if you're going to train specifically for something like this, you've, you've kind of done it. Like you've done a hundred miler with no calories. So, you know, like if in a pinch, you can get a pretty good chunk out of the, you know, you can, you can keep moving forward, I guess, if you get behind on nutrition or something like that, uh, worst case scenario. And then with the 300 mile effort you did, like, I mean, that coupled with all the stuff you've done, you kind of know, like, this isn't something that's so far of a stretch for you individually. Um, so I think that's interesting. Do you uh, have any unique or particular fueling strategies that you're going to use for this? Like, how, how are you kind of structuring that side of things? Um, so actually, 
Um, and my brother is a kitchen manager at a Brazilian steakhouse called Tecanos. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sent him a message. I was like, hey, what are the chances that you guys want to give me some meat? <laughs> so he, actually, Tecanos has given me a bunch of steak um, that they're going to pre-cook for me. And, and we're going to bring like a camp chef and I'm going to have my crew cook me up steaks. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to eat a lot more meat than I typically would at a race. Um, and you know, I, you've said up to me a lot and I've heard you say in other podcasts, but like the more, the more it makes sense to do like a fat adapted approach, like hard keto, even sometimes a carnivore approach is a longer distance, something like this, where you're doing a much lower intensity. So I, I've tried that. Like I did that in my 200s. I did that in the 300s. So, you know, I'm going to do a lot more meat than I would if I was doing like a shorter race. Um, I am going to have some carbs though, just because, you know, they're beneficial. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like I, I, I'm going to have like a bunch of real fruit with me in my vest. Um, I tend to do better with like real foods um, over like goo or something like that. So I'm going to have some like applesauce packets in my vest. I'm going to have some fruit leathers. Um, I'm going to have some freeze dried fruit, some apple juice. I, I really do good with fruit, but you know, the in-between sections where I won't have my crew, I'm going to have a lot of fruit based products. And then when I get to my crew, I'm going to have some steak and sausage and bacon and then ref ref refill my vest and then take off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think like, to, to kind of reflect on what you said, I think like when you get into distances and times, as long as you're doing like on paper, anyway, there's, there's basically zero reason to believe that in, in my opinion, that a ketogenic or a zero carb diet wouldn't be something that could be, be a usable tool, especially if your experience is showing things like reduced soreness second day. Cause you got to worry about day two, day three, day four. It sounds like, you know, at best up to day six, day seven. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's blazing. So like it could be longer. And um, so you want to, you know, that's what I've been describing when I'm talking about like preparing for the transcon run that I'm hoping to do next year is just, uh, you know, historically I've raced on race day with the mentality that, uh, you know, I'm, I can destroy myself today because tomorrow I don't have to move. Whereas with something like the transcon or something that you're used to do, you got to be worried about the next day and the next day after that and the next day after that in this case. So, um, I think, you know, sticking to what you found works in terms of feeling good and not broken in subsequent days after big efforts is probably going to be the blueprint that's going to work best for you. And then obviously staying on top of hydration and electrolytes yeah. and things like that. But, um, you know, you know, your routine with that stuff, you've got plenty of experience. So, uh, I think it's interesting. I thought when you said the Brazilian steakhouse, you're gonna have someone out there with one of those big skewers <laughs> and just like slit slithering off a piece for you as you go along. But, uh, All it sounds like on the trail. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it sounds like a, a good strategy to me. I think, uh, you know, the other thing I wonder about with, with carbohydrates too, like in to kind of, I guess, counter what I said before is, you know, you probably would get a, like just the ingestion of a carbohydrate source maybe would just like kind of perk you up a little bit. So you're going to be fighting sleep deprivation. So something that maybe like just a small amount of similar to caffeine almost where you have it and it just like kind of fires up your central nervous system a little bit. Um, I guess the question would be, does that do that more than say eating something in general? Cause consume, let's say you had like a strip of bacon would that kind of peak your central nervous system from just the ingestion of food versus, you know, the fruit or something like that. But, um, well, when we did that 300 mile, <laughs> um, like for example, so Ben Light, he does keto too. Um, 
So basically whatever I was eating at an aid station, um, he was eating too. He just <laughs> followed so there, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically we'd like, we had cell service for most of it. So we'd like call our crew and be like, Hey, go to Buffalo wild wings and get some chicken wings. <laughs> um, but so yeah, speaking of that, we had chicken wings at one aid station and that's all we ate. And it was super satiating. It just, it tasted so good. But that next section, we kind of felt a little bit of a lull. Um, whereas before that, like we had sushi at one aid station, we had sweet potatoes fries at one aid station. And so those like, those felt great in between. Like we had a little bit more of a, you know, like you said, we were a little bit more perky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, after that chicken wing experience, we made it a point to have some kind of potato with any real food that we were eating. And, and that made a huge difference. Um, mostly just for feeling a little bit more positivity and, and energy to to tackle on the next aid station. So yeah, that, that, I'll be doing that too. <laughs> awesome, Mike. Well, I know I don't want to hold you up too long. I told you I'd keep it short for this because I know you got a busy couple of days coming up with preparing and things like that. But um, I love hearing about what you've been up to since, uh, you know, quarantine. I, I love the stories where people decide like, you know what, this doesn't have to be the end of my, my adventuring. And you've certainly are on top of the list of folks who've been out doing plenty of adventuring when you can, when you can pull it off. So uh, I know I'll be rooting for you and following along as well as uh, um, any of the listeners here who want to follow along. You want to share with us any way to track you or is there a social media platform or anything that's going to be kind of giving updates along the way for this? Yeah, so I'm going to have my crew um, <clears throat> do updates for me, like give them my login information. So I'm just, I'm the low carb runner on Instagram. Um, and I actually just last night finalized my website I'm going to kind of use the, I'll have a spot tracker on me so you can like track me in real time. And I'm going to use my, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to launch my website. So my, my website is also lowcarb-runner.com. And if you go to that, the first thing that's going to pop up is like a little, you know, ad that if you click on it, it will take you to the tracking page and, and you can follow along in the journey. Perfect. You're making it easy for us. We'll, we'll yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be following along and uh, you know, rooting for you and, pulling for that sub week finishing time as the, as the kind of top end goal, but certainly hoping that you get that record and can, can, can tell us all about it when it's over. Thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome. Mike, thanks again for coming on. Of course. Thanks for having me. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at zachbitter on Instagram at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.